Father everlasting. Our Father everlasting, be your creating one. God Almighty. We're talking about the train right now. It's on the upper track. It's going to wait until I start preaching. And it's going to like, all right, now's the time. Let's get going and let's make all the noise we can. So, if it does. What do you guys think? What's the over-under of how many trains come through here in the next 20 minutes? Two. Forty-two. Okay. One long, constant, slow-moving train. How about that? As we start this morning, I want to read our passage again out of Matthew 28. This is from the NRSV, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tell you a story as we get started today. Who grew up in the South? Who grew up in the South? If you grew up in the South, the Deep South, or let's say in like Oklahoma, Texas, maybe some places like that, you know about tornadoes. There's a few uh, out there. You know about tornadoes, right? Tornado <laughs> Alley, Kansas, a few places, a lot of places. When I was 10 years old, it was another day where, I don't know, there might be bad weather. This is how it was in Alabama. Nothing was canceled, though. My sister had softball practice. Um, it's clear skies, just like this, uh, but no clouds at all. It was nice. We went to softball practice. Uh, no big deal. But yeah, halfway through, you start to see a few dark clouds in the distance. And all of a sudden, um, coach calls out to the whole team and everybody in the stands, we're going to go ahead and cancel practice. Everybody's like, what? I mean, that's tornado watch, but we know tornado watches. They happen all the time. Well, let's go ahead and cancel practice. Okay. We go home. And I remember this day very, very well, and you'll find out why in a second. It gets a little darker. It's not even raining, by the way, though. I think Ivan went outside to play for a little bit, but then we'd begin to see a little lightning in the distance. Mom tells me, come on in, Kevin. Um, lightning outside, let's, let's not go there. Well, then we cut on the TV and we notice, wait a minute, there's a tornado warning for, for our county? But it's, it's clear, it's, there's nothing really happening, right? And so my mom's like, okay, let's everybody get in the vehicle. Now, here's what, here's what you did in the South, right? And maybe this is what you did in Alabama. There was like churches and storm shelters around. And we'd like, depending on which friend we could get a hold of or which church we knew that was available that day, we'd go to their basement or their storm shelter. So we went to different places. So today was the local Church of Christ. We were going to drive up to the local Church of Christ. They had a basement. We'd been, we'd been there before. Uh, for whatever reason, my mom thought, hey, this is the day for the Church of Christ basement, right? <laughs> so my mom's not, it's not a big deal. It's just, okay, let's go through the emotions. Let's get through the tornado warning. Let's come back, right? Drove up there. Well, nobody's there. The doors are locked. And we're like, well, it must not be, be, uh, be a big deal. My mom's not panicked at all. 
So we're driving back down the interstate from north to south back to my house. We're just going to go back home. And that's when I saw it. I've never, and it wasn't even raining. Not even raining. I turned to my right, and I could, if I close my eyes, I can see this today as clear as I'm looking at you. What I found out later was a mile-wide tornado on the ground, less than three miles from us. And nobody had seen this yet. My mom was driving straight, no big deal. My sister had not seen it. I look over, and in that instant, and it probably was no more than a second or two, I thought to myself, there's no way I'm actually seeing this. I doubted my own, like, what is this? I'd seen movies. I'd seen tornadoes, and I'd seen Twister, maybe. Sharknado. Sharknado. Not there yet. But I saw this tornado. And I said, Mom? And she looks over. And she goes from going about 50 miles an hour. I remember looking, because she was going faster, to 90 miles an hour. And instead of going home, we went to this other church. And by then, other people were frantically driving and going. So we pull in. To make a long story short now, we get into their basement area just in time to hear like the train sound that tornadoes make. And all the lights went out. It was bad. The tornado hit our town. It destroyed my school, which is kind of like, at the time I thought it was cool, which was not. <laughs> Friends' homes, people lost their lives. It was not a good day. But in that instant, I, I doubted. Even though I could see it with my own eyes, there was, there was doubt. I want to talk to you about these five verses at the very end of Matthew. And kind of relate it with something we overlook in this passage. We know the Great Commission. We'll talk about that. We'll go through this passage. But about this doubt. About this doubt. Okay. So Jesus has now been raised from the dead. We know this. Easter is here People have seen Jesus. The women were there. But the disciples hadn't seen Jesus yet, right? Did they remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 26, 31? A few verses, a few chapters earlier, when Jesus said to them, You will become deserters because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Jesus is telling his disciples this just a few chapters earlier. Did they remember that? Did they believe the women who told them the same thing? Matthew 28, 10, we talked about this last week. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Did they believe? But the disciples did go. They went. Or at least 11 of them. We feel that tinge of sadness, though, don't we? Because it's not 12 anymore. It's the 11. Judas is no longer here. You may be looking at this passage and you say, well, what, what mountain are we talking about? You know, Matthew actually doesn't really care about geography. The mountains in Matthew are never called. The story of the transfiguration, the Sermon on the Mount, it's all just a mountain. But they knew. This journey was not just a quick one. They were probably in Jerusalem, where they were. To go from Jerusalem to Galilee... It's not just here to it's not here to Trevecca. It's at least a three days journey if you go through Samaria, right? Five if you go around Samaria. They went though. And then it happens. They get there. 
and there's Jesus. The gospel writer tells us they worshipped him, and some doubted. It does not say that some worshipped and some doubted, as if some did not worship. But the original language here indicates that all worshipped, while some doubted while worshipping. We'll get, again, back to this doubt in a second. And then Jesus speaks. And if you're reading through Matthew, maybe even for the first time, maybe you're somebody that uh, hasn't been to church and, and you haven't read all the way through Matthew, you notice very quickly, this book, this gospel is about to end. Right? And if you've ever pulled up you know, your favorite novel and you flip and it's, you realize, wow, this is the last page, and maybe you've still got a lot of unanswered questions, you, we've only have a few verses to get down to the point of what's happening here. And so maybe as you're reading this or you're looking at your Bible, you're like, what is Jesus going to say? There's only a few verses here. It's got to be very succinct at this point. But instead of stating... Maybe the most obvious thing here, that Jesus stating, I'm the risen Savior, he doesn't actually say that. He simply begins by reminding the disciples that whatever he's about to say, he has authority to say it. Then we get the Great Commission, right? If you grew up in the church, you've probably heard this preached and shared and talked about on numerous occasions. so it's the go, therefore, make disciples of all, na of all nations. Therefore, I've, I've talked about this before even when I've preached, it's such a strong word. simply means, again, therefore, remember exactly what I just said. I've got this authority to whatever I'm going to tell you. This is serious. This is, this is true. Go, therefore, and make disciples. This is what Jesus is saying. Everything else is talking about how one makes disciples. But the call and the commission is simply to go and make disciples. Jesus is saying, go reproduce yourselves. Make more of yourself. Not by birth, like as the commission to Adam and Eve was in the Garden of Eden. But, but how do we do this? How does one make disciples? I'll make a quick side note here. Most sermons that I have heard about the Great Commission focuses on this next prepositional phrase of, in all the nations, right? And it's an important one to talk about. But scripture's fairly clear here. As you go, as you go make disciples, here, there, everywhere, no one should be overlooked. We're not going to spend a lot of time here today because I, I think our context here, I think we, we understand that. To make disciples in all nations, this is Jew and Gentile. This is there, it's here, it's everyone. So again, how does one make disciples? Jesus tells us in two words how to make disciples. And then he describes a little bit about this. How do you make disciples? Baptizing and teaching. The language, again, is those simple two phrases with some descriptors after that. So what is baptizing? Now Jesus doesn't say here that is this a John type of water baptism? Or if this is, is this like a baptism by fire and the Holy Spirit? As if you remember back to Matthew 3, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worried to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. But the point is that the point is that this baptism, Jesus doesn't say is it by water, by the Holy Spirit. It's a transformative experience. 
That's what this is. This baptism is a transformative experience. See, when the early church, if you became a follower of the way, if you became an early church Christian, you got baptized right away, right? It's not that you waited till later. It just was a part of it. You found your local river, and you just got baptized in water. You, that was just a part of it, right? Baptism is a transformative experience. I found a quote, and I like this. It says this, Baptism, especially in Matthew 28, is an act of making a transition from outside the community of God to a disciple within it. Making disciples is first about transformation from death to life. So that's your first call. How do you make disciples? Baptize. Transform. It's that crisis-type moment, as you might have heard in the church before. So what about the second point? Hey, there's our first term. Our second one is teaching. Now, this one's interesting. You realize teaching has never been a mandate from Jesus to the disciples throughout Scripture. Now, what has been talked about and commissioned was they were given, the disciples were given authority even very, very early on in Matthew 10 to drive out demons, to heal every sickness, to heal diseases, but not to teach. You realize that? Jesus never tells the disciples to teach until now. They were learners. Jesus was the rabbi. Jesus was the great teacher. But now the risen Savior is commissioning these 11 to baptize and to teach. And as teaching, it's a continual proclamation of the kingdom of God that Jesus has been doing, and they are now to do. And lastly, Jesus reminds them that he will go with the 11. I love this last verse of the Gospel of Matthew. They won't be doing this alone, but he will go along with them. I doubt if they understand the fullness of what Jesus means here. We have the context of a Pentecost and the Holy Spirit being given, but Jesus gives them this promise. Do they understand? I kind of wonder that. When Jesus says forever, do they think the risen Jesus in the form that Jesus was in? This is pre-ascension. Would he go with them? Or how would that look? We know, but whatever it was, Jesus makes this promise. And then that's it. That's it for Matthew. Matthew stops here. In Matthew, there's no ascension. There's no uh, other post-resurrection encounters. The gospel ends right here. Except for Mark, which is even more of a kind of a weird ending. Um, You just don't get a lot of information. Why? It's not that Matthew simply, like, got tired of writing, ran out of his papyrus scroll here, and like, oh, I guess that's it. This was the perfect audience. This was the perfect ending for his audience for the story of Jesus. And here's why. Matthew begins with a genealogy, right? A connection with the past. And notes that Jesus in chapter 1 is to be called Emmanuel. If you remember from any biblical classes or anything you know about, Emmanuel means God with us. And then the writer begins by affirming that this child is to, that is to be born is with us and ends by saying the same thing. Jesus, the risen Savior, saying, I will be with you forever. Right? So you begin by this presence that Jesus is saying that I am with you to ending I am with you. So I want to go back and talk about this doubt piece with you for a few moments. This would be easy to skip over with, 
and maybe we wouldn't even notice. And remember, Jesus told this to the eleven, his closest friends, of what the future of God, the future kingdom of God would look like. But still, some of these people, his closest friends, still doubted. And Jesus, the risen Savior, was right in front of him, of them. And they still doubted. But you know what? Doubt did not prevent the disciples from worshiping. And Jesus doesn't separate the eleven. Like, those who worshiped without doubt, those that worshiped with doubt. And said, well, you true worshipers, let me share the Great Commission with you, and you go forth. He doesn't even address it, according to the Gospel of Matthew. And again, if you grew up in the South, doubt was not something that was really talked about in a healthy way. Doubt, when it came to faith, was unacceptable. That's how I grew up, at least. If you had doubt, well, you must go repent for your sin of doubt. That's not what the Scripture talks about here. Or, here's a better one maybe you've experienced. You need to pray more and the doubt will be taken away. I experienced that. Maybe you did as well. See, we as humans can be very slow to react to truth sometimes. We are hesitant and weary, and we doubt. This is seen all through Scripture. You see the calling passages of Moses, of Jeremiah. There's some hesitancy. Jeremiah says, I'm too young, I'm too young. There's some doubt. But it doesn't mean they didn't obey. There is a difference here. So, the exact Greek word here for doubt is only seen one other time in Scripture, period, in the Greek New Testament. It's also found in Matthew. It's the story of Peter walking on water. And if you remember this story, Peter walks out, right? And then the waves start to crash more, and he gets a little scared. And what is said is, Jesus says, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Jesus doesn't, and it kind of ends there. It goes on to the next story. Yes, Jesus calls it out. You have little faith. We don't have a lot of context in the, the manner in which Jesus is saying this. But he doesn't say, you're out now, Peter. Because you doubted, you, you're off. You're off the team. No, he doesn't at all. So what is doubt here? In Greek, it literally means separate throughout or to separate wholly. Like if you got it down to the root of what doubt is in the New Testament, with all the different nuanced Greek words um, that all get translated into doubt, it's to separate throughout, or to separate wholly. And again, what gets translated for us is only seen these two times. The one here, and the one in the walking on the water for Peter. Doubt. I'd like to read just a few quotes and then a short paragraph by one of my favorite writers named Asa Guinness. He wrote a book called The Call. Really good one. Recommend. One quote is, Doubt is not the opposite of faith in Matthew, but an inevitable, inevitable part of the life of faith and discipleship. Faithfulness is obedience to Jesus, even in the midst of doubt. And then what Asa Guinness says in one of his books, he says, contrary to widespread misunderstanding, doubt is not the same as unbelief. So it is not the opposite of faith. Rather, it is a state of mind and suspension between faith and unbelief. To believe is to be of one mind in accepting something as true, 
To disbelieve is to be in one mind in rejecting it. To doubt is to waver somewhere between the two, and thus to be of two minds. This important distinction uncovers a major misconception of doubt. The idea that a believer betrays faith and surrenders to unbelief by doubting. This two-ness or double-ness represents the deepest dilemma of doubt. The heart of doubt is a divided heart. Here is the essence of the biblical view of doubt, which is echoed in human language and experience from all around the world. All of the New Testament words for doubt have this sense of doubleness. So also do many other languages. The Chinese speak of a person with a foot in two boats, and the Navajo Indians of that which is two with a person. An all-important difference exists, therefore, between the open-minded uncertainty of doubt and the closed-minded certainty of unbelief. Because faith is crucial, doubt is serious. But because doubt is not unbelief, it is not terminal. It is a halfway stage that can lead on to a deepened faith as easily as it can break down to unbelief. See, doubt does not stand in opposition to faith. It doesn't. And as with Matthew 14, story of Peter, this doubt supposes little faith, but faith. Discipleship from Matthew only presupposes little faith. Matthew does not describe faith as having all the answers, but having a willingness to believe, even in doubt. Jesus is presented as being completely okay, sitting with the disciples in their little faith. You see this over and over. Peter's not banished, like I said before. He is, he is even lifted up and continues to be a disciple and one that Jesus seems to trust very much, even when he continues to fail and deny Jesus. This doesn't give us a pass at sitting where we are in faith and not growing, but doubt does not equal unbelief. Doubt can still be perceived as weakness, yes, but it's not an absence. It is faith as long as it is accompanied by obedience. So I want to kind of wrap us up by telling you the end of this story that I shared at the beginning. You know that tornado that came through that ravaged my hometown? There was an old man, true story, had a farmhouse. He'd been living there. He was in his 70s. He'd seen tornadoes. And again, Alabama, you get tornadoes all the time. He'd seen these tornadoes many times. He had even seen tornadoes on the ground. But they had always tracked a different direction. So he would sit out on his front porch and watch these wall clouds, these bad thunderstorms, but he would never do anything. He had a storm shelter on his property, but he never did anything. He would just sit on his front porch and wait for the storm to pass. This one was different. This one he waited. It's not turning north. He waited. It wasn't going back in the sky. This tornado hit directly on his house and flattened it completely. Even though he had seen something over and over and over again a certain way. He doubted that <laughs> it wouldn't do the exact same thing over. 
surprisingly, it flattened his house, but he lived, which was crazy. I still don't know how. There were people that lost their lives in this tornado. I remember seeing this like a few weeks later and hit the house, right? There was nothing more. I had no idea how he lived. But as we walk, and as you walk in your spiritual path, don't lose sight of the risen Savior. As if doubt comes, or you feel the weight of your own imperfection and failure, those times will come. Don't forget that even with little faith, even with just a little faith, God can do so much in us. We aren't here to stay where we are, though, right? We're not supposed to just not grow. But if little faith is all you have and doubt does exist, Jesus is still with us. Just like with the disciples, he will be with us to the very end of the age. Let me pray for us this morning. I want to just take a few minutes before our kids come back. Just kind of in silence after I pray until the kids get back up here. If you're struggling with doubt or the, the how the church has made you feel about any sense of doubt that you've had, I just want to give us a chance and a moment to to sit in that and to know and for me to share with you that that's okay. It's okay to sit in that. It's not okay to stay where you're at in your faith journey. God calls us to continue to grow. Yes. But doubt is not unbelief. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this morning and your word. We thank you for this this season of you coming and not staying in the tomb, but you rising. We thank you for this commission to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach, and that you will be with us. And even our little faith, you, as long as we are obedient, even in our doubt, you can guide and direct us to great and wonderful things for you. In your name we pray. Amen.